This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, artist, creative coder, and researcher Rupa Vasudevan explores what technology and data can teach us about ourselves. This event was part of the Haresh and Joan Shah Lecture and Performance Series. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Um, so before I start, I want to warn everybody that there's going to be some content in here that might be a little bit offensive to some. Um, I'm going to be talking about things like gender and sexuality, um, race and police brutality, using some very strong language um, in the context of a project that I did, and also covering the touchiest of all subjects, which is American politics. Um, so for those of you who are squeamish about any of this, just Please let this serve as your warning, and I apologize if it makes anybody uncomfortable. Um, So my primary interests as an artist and researcher um, have all fallen under this umbrella uh, of what has begun to be known um, in a general sense as digital anthropology. And as you can see, what digital anthropology is, is it's the study of relationships between humans and technology. And more specifically, I'm interested in answering the question, um, what can technology tell us about ourselves and our behavior? Uh, We live in a society now where we are kind of married to tech, right? We use our digital devices, we use social media, we browse the internet constantly, and consciously or unconsciously, we are all leaving some kind of digital data trail behind us. Everything that we do uh, with regards to technology and with regards to us using technology and recording technology and kind of being online in any way is recorded in a permanent fashion, meaning that it's always there and it can always be accessed in some way, right? Um, So I'm interested in exploring kind of what these data trails leave behind and what these trails, when kind of gathered from a large group of people and a large amount of them can tell us about how we as society and culture um, kind of behave around each other in terms of politics, in terms of culture and social norms, um, and just in generally in terms of interpersonal reactions or relationships. Um, But before I talk more about that, I'm actually going to get a little bit personal. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about my background and how I came to be here, because I think that it's pretty relevant to not only my practice and what I'm doing as an artist, but also um, in terms of kind of the series in general, um, being personally uh, a second generation, um, you know, Indian American uh, son of immigrants who came here in 1979. Um, So these are the three things that I use mostly to describe myself when I'm giving talks or in my bio on my website. Um, I'm an artist and creative coder. I'm interested in using technology to explore and expose patterns in our culture and behavior. And the first thing I'm going to talk about is this um, 
last category or this last statement, which is to explore and expose concepts or ideas and patterns in our culture and behavior. Um, so I'm going to rewind back to what I refer um, way back to, I think it was 2010, 2011. Um, and I'm going to show you uh, a clip. Uh, this is what is called the super tease or the intro from an episode of MTV's True Life entitled True Life, I'm a Sex Offender. My life has changed so much. Nobody wants to be friends with a sex offender. In most states, if you're convicted of a sex crime and are not serving time in jail, you'll likely have to register with local law enforcement as a sex offender. Bring that paperwork with you to show proof that you are a sex offender. Definitely will. A designation that can impact for decades your ability to find work and even live where you want to. I'm a registered sex offender. I'm not supposed to live within 500 feet of a park. And while the idea of registered sex offenders conjures up images of horrific criminals, this term can also apply to teenagers who've had consensual sex with their underage partners. They just treat you like you're the worst thing possible. Justin was convicted of criminal sexual abuse because of an intimate relationship he had at age 18 with his 15-year-old girlfriend. It's hard being categorized in the same pool as some old man trying to lure little kids. Now, he's having trouble adjusting to the paranoia, fear, and loneliness that come with being considered a sexual predator. Sorry, waiting for that little kid to walk by. Can Justin find a way to help reform his state's sex offender laws so he can ultimately be removed from the registry? I just want my life back. Terry was 18 when he played a game of truth or dare with a 14-year-old girlfriend that spun out of control. One thing that would have solved this all in the beginning is if you would have kept your stuff in your pants. He's been a registered sex offender for three years, but now has one shot to get his name off the list. It just hurts really bad. What hurts is that you're now suffering the consequences of what you did. Can Terry own up to his actions and convince a judge that he's not a threat to society? If they get any sense that there's defiance, if I was a judge, I would deny it. They're carrying a stigma that could last their entire lives. That is me posted on the sex offender website. Will they overcome it? My heart is going like thump, 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 thump right now because of all the cops. Find out on True Life, I'm a sex offender. He's going to pass out flyers. It's like he's telling everybody Ted Bundy just moved into the neighborhood. My life is over. Okay. So you guys might be wondering why I'm playing this. It has nothing to do with the subject of the talk. It is not relevant to digital anthropology or anything like that whatsoever. Um, but I was actually the producer of that show. Uh, and I was a producer and director for the MTV series True Life for years prior to embarking on the career path that I'm on now. Uh, Sex Offender was the last show that I produced for MTV before I quit my job uh, in September of 2011. Um, and kind of going back to this um, and starting going even further back to high school as these super nerdy photos of me from high school will show, um, I've always been interested in exploring the experiences of others even from an early age. 
change. Um, as you can see here, I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio, um, that touted itself uh, for being very racially diverse. But in reality, it was really just about 50% black and 50% white. And so there was no room for any kind of other diverse backgrounds in that grouping, right? As a result, I was pretty much the only Indian kid in my grade and often the entire school. And this kind of led to um, my experiencing this idea of not being considered like anybody else, not having a home life, you know, growing up with immigrant parents, not many other people in my high school um, or any of my friends had that similar experience. And so there were a lot of questions as far as, you know, grades and being out at night and restrictions that I seemed to have because of my parents that they didn't necessarily have because they didn't have the experience of their parents learning American culture at the same time that I was. Um, and then generally just being perceived as an other and kind of being asked questions that maybe made me a little bit uncomfortable um, and that experience of people not really knowing what to do with me. Um, and so as a result, this in, in the course of my life has made me really interested in how people are perceived and treated by other people and, if, if, and what, if anything, can be done to change the way that this works um, and kind of what is ingrained in our social norms to make us behave this way around people that aren't like us. Um, and so this led me after college to uh, join MTV News and Docs uh, and work on the series True Life. And the job took me all over the USA. Um, I filmed with, as you saw, teenage sex offenders. I also filmed with transgender youth, food addicts, kids who had devastatingly serious allergies that put them in the hospital, kids who had facial tumors that needed to be removed, um, survivalists in the north woods of Wisconsin, on a hippie commune in Tennessee, in operating rooms, in strip clubs, and in high schools. Um, I filmed with people from all different walks of life, most of whom I would have never had the opportunity to meet had it not been for that job. Um, and some of whom I kept in touch with long after my time on the show ended, after we finished filming, after the show aired, I would still get email updates from them and communicate with them to find out how they were doing. And I made friends through this job that kind of introduced me to different perspectives and different ways of life that I would not have gotten otherwise. Um, and so for a while, this was really great. And I was really happy to be doing something that I found really fulfilling, that was educational, um, and that kind of led me to be able to interact and share the stories of so many different people across the US. Um, but as my time at MTV went on, uh, they began putting more emphasis on programming like Jersey Shore, or The Hills, or My Super Sweet 16, that was kind of masquerading as documentary, but didn't really do much to educate or bring awareness in the way that I was looking for. Um, and so as time went on, yes, I was still working on true life, and yes, I was still working on subject matter that I found really interesting, but I started to kind of itch for other ways to be doing the same thing and to kind of be enabling these perspective shifts for people to understand and recontextualize things that they previously saw in one light. Um, and so that leads me to the first two parts of my bio, uh, which is the artist and creative coder interested in using technology. I did what anybody who is dissatisfied with their career path out of undergrad would do. I went to graduate school. Um, and I found the program, the Interactive Telecommunications Program at NYU at the Tisch School of the Arts, which is a two-year ma two master's, uh, master's degree that kind of is all about experimenting with technology. Um, they build themselves as the center for the recently possible. And it's all about engaging technology, not just for the sake of tech or not specifically for entrepreneurship, reasons, but just to bring delight and excitement and creativity into people's lives. 
And so it was there that I learned a lot of new skills from cutting open, you know, fabrication skills. I was cutting open a fiberglass mannequin. Um, I, you know, honed my presentation skills, which you are all seeing right now. Um, I, you know, kind of picked up embroidery again after not doing it since I was a kid. Um, I learned to solder. Um, and I kind of learned all of these skills or used skills that I hadn't really touched in a really long time in service of the projects that I was doing uh, for this program. I showed my work in an artistic setting for the first time. This is from my first ITP winter show, and you can see the palpable look of joy on my face seeing somebody interact with my first semester final project. Um, but most importantly, it's ultimately where I discovered programming and where I discovered code and where I learned how to do this. And suddenly this thing that seemed so impenetrable to me for so long and like something that I was never gonna be good at or never able to do or didn't really find interesting in the context that it was presented to me all of a sudden became accessible and I learned how to use it in service of the messages that I wanted to convey and the stories that I wanted to tell. And so very quickly throughout my time at ITP and afterwards, um, I combined my interests and I began using technology as a way to examine social constructs, politics, and cultural behavior, things that I'd always been interested in but now was able to kind of examine from a new light by using technology. The other thing that ITP did for me was that it kind of introduced me to a long-running interest in social media and the internet. Um, where you have these platforms where you have individual voices, millions and millions of individual voices that have their own soapboxes and their own way to kind of say whatever they want to say at any given point in time. And then, like I was saying before, you also have large amounts of data that is just being left behind. So you have, you have a way for people to kind of vocalize their thoughts and opinions in a very unrestricted way. You can get a Twitter account and you can post whatever you want to it, right? As long as it's under 140 characters, Characters, or now 240 if you're part of the pilot program, um, but you can post whatever you want to your account. There's no real restrictions, um, you know, for the most part, and you can just say whatever you're thinking at any point in time, while at the same time leaving that indelible data trail behind you as a record of kind of what you were thinking at a given point in time. Um, and so that also, you know, as I was kind of working on this at ITP, I started looking at large chunks of these social media data trails and seeing what I could do with code to analyze and explore uh, you know, people's language and the way that they talked on social media and kind of what I could extrapolate from that. Um, so now I'm going to introduce you, after that introduction, I'm going to introduce you to a body of work um, of important projects that I kind of think illustrate not only my growth as an artist um, over the last few years, but also kind of the way that my, uh, my practice and kind of the way that I look at these things has kind of evolved over time. Um, so the first project I want to show you came as a result of this news clip from 2012, which some of you may actually remember. Now to that huge firestorm developing after Rush Limbaugh's controversial comments on his radio show about a Georgetown student in the center of the battle over contraception and religious rights. ABC's Jake Tapper is here with this story. And Jake, this is really heating up. Good morning. Good morning, Robin. So much of politics is about framing. Is this a debate about contraception? Is it a debate about religious liberty? Or is it a debate about a talk radio giant insulting a third-year law student? For two days, Rush Limbaugh has eviscerated Sandra Fluke on the radio. What does it say about the college co-ed Susan Fluke, who goes before a congressional committee and essentially says that she must be paid to have sex? What does that make her?
It makes her a slut, right? Makes her a prostitute. She wants to be paid to have sex. Okay. Um, I have always, throughout high school, throughout college, been a staunch advocate for reproductive rights. And so when this controversy happened and when this was really heating up and getting a lot of press attention, I kept turning it around in my mind. And the only conclusion that I could come to is that women were actually women and men who chose to use birth control were actually being punished for making a responsible decision. Um, and they were being judged and they were being condemned when all they're trying to do is make the decision that's best for them. And it seemed really um, just kind of absurd to me. So I made a project entitled Sluts Across America. Um, and you'll see in the screen recording, it's a website that allowed users to kind of input a reason for supporting birth control that would then be conflated with the, the phrase, I'm a slut because. Um, and this was released um, in April of 2012. It went viral in 48 hours and it gathered over 8,000 responses uh, in just two days with more coming in over the following days. You can see the screen recording, you've got people kind of running the gamut for why they were submitting to this site, right? You have people who had really facetious answers like, I don't ever want kids, and listing all the reasons that they don't ever want to have kids. You have people who had really serious medical issues. You had people who were talking about not wanting to bring another child into the world, into the state that things are right now. And you saw that over time, not only did you have a really rapid expanse across the United States showing that there was a uh, a support for birth control that was kind of not limited to certain coastal areas as one might expect at that point, right? But instead, it was spanning across the entire world. And you can see that there were submissions from all over the place, from Europe, from Asia, from Australia, Africa. Um, there, were, there were people who were contributing to the site, not just from the US, but from everywhere. Um, so this kind of took me by surprise and was really unexpected. And um, what also was unexpected to me was the amount of press that it got. Um, so you have people who were, you know, the first piece of press that I got was actually a Fox 5, uh, a Fox News kind of piece about the site. And they kind of mistook me for a group because I remained anonymous with this project because I wasn't sure what kind of reception it was going to receive. Um, they took me for an advocacy group uh, and kind of did an article about it. Uh, I made the mistake of reading the comments section, which was really disheartening that first day. Um, then you had really interesting think pieces. Um, this piece on Slate is actually one of my favorites, which is really talking about the reason why I did this project, which was this idea of reclaiming language. I wanted to see if it was possible to kind of make the word slut so absurd and its usage so decontextualized that it stopped carrying any weight whatsoever. You also got responses to these pieces, right, that were claiming um, that this language was so weighted that it could never be reclaimed and that there was nothing positive that could ever be made from it because it carried so much weight from the past um, and were kind of condemning the project because they thought that what I was trying to do was essentially worthless, right? They didn't think that it should even be done in the first place because they thought that it really uh, kind of... Um, devalued the initial meaning and kind of was really terrible to the people that the original derogatory language was targeted against. And so this idea and seeing this feedback directly led into my next project, uh, which was a project entitled Hate Couture. Um, and Hate Couture is a series of high fashion garments that were created from the analysis of online hate speech from Twitter, Reddit, and YouTube, scraped over the course of a week. Um, and so not only did Sluts Across America and the response from it lead me to this 
this project. But also, um, in 2013, I became really interested in seeing how, after President Obama was inaugurated for his second term, how the reaction to him on social media was kind of going. Um, and you see that people were not kind of shy about using really hateful language. They were using the N-word a lot when describing him, right? Um, and so I thought that this was really interesting that uh, you know, I was willing to bet that most of these people in real life would never go up to an African-American person and call them a nigger, right? That would just never happen. But on the internet, it's a free-for-all. And the, the anonymity of the internet allowed people to do things that were kind of like unthinkable in real life. Um, and so just to illustrate the kind of what I'm going for, this is a screen recording um, of a search for the word nigger on Twitter. Um, it's only for about 30 seconds, but I could have gone on for much, much longer. And you'll see what surprised me, even though the things that interested me about this usage online was it being used in a very hateful and directed manner, you'll see if you kind of take a look at this screen recording that the word is actually used in a variety of contexts, right? You have people, yes, using it in the original hateful derogatory meaning, but then you also have people trying to reclaim it and use it as a phrase of kinship or kind of something um, uh, to kind of really bring you closer or to refer to a friend. And then you also have people who um, are kind of just using it as a way to add color to what they're posting on Twitter, right? Without actually um, meaning it in the way that it's meant to be used, they just kind of throw it in because it's edgy and it's something that they can kind of make their tweets a little bit more spicy with, right? Um, so this led to uh, the Hate Couture Project, which, as I mentioned before, I spent a week, I wrote a program um, that basically combed through Twitter, Reddit, and YouTube looking for these four words. Um, and I apologize, uh, the word nigger for the African-American community, the word faggot for the LGBTQ community, the word cunt for women, and a combination of the phrases raghead, towelhead, sand monkey, and sand nigger for Muslims. Um, and so every time uh, my program would find a tweet or find a post on Reddit or a YouTube comment that was posted within the last 24 hours that hit one of these words, it would save it to a database and I kind of amassed a collection of every time one of these words was used on these outlets over the course of a week of March of 2013, I think was when I was doing the scraping. Um, and next, uh, I worked uh, with uh, a, a library called uh, the Natural Language Toolkit in Python, which enabled me to kind of build a mechanism to determine, to loosely determine which instances were more hateful and which instances were least hateful. So I assigned a point system based on a lot of research into how this language was being used online um, and kind of investigating a little bit. I used Amazon's Mechanical Turk and kind of outsourced it to a whole bunch of people to kind of determine what kind contexts were more hateful, what contexts were least hateful, and through context words that were surrounding the original search, search terms, I was able to kind of evaluate whether or not uh, a use of one of these words was actually meant in a really hateful way. So for example, the phrase, go to hell, you terrorist raghead, I hope you die, would gain more points and would be a more hateful phrase than something like, my little brother is being such a fag right now. Right, because the first one is clearly meant directly at a Muslim person. The second one is in that category that I was talking about where somebody's just using the word fag just to be like, oh yeah, I'm gonna call him the fag because it's offensive and because you know it's gonna add some color to whatever I'm posting on Twitter. Um, from those scores, 
I devised a color scaling system. Um, and the uses that were classified as more benign or reappropriative, or actually you got a lot of posts, particularly on Reddit, that were trying to use this language in a more educational light, right? Telling people why they shouldn't be using this language and then using the language in the context of that post. Those ended up getting a lighter color. The colors were chosen with specific context to the word itself and the demographic communities that they were attacking. Um, and then the darker the color got, the more extremely pointed and hateful the language was. And from there, I was able to create these visualizations, as you can see, one for each community that I was examining, that kind of created this really glitchy, pixelated pattern. But each square actually represents one instance of this language being used on one of these social media outlets. Um, and this was kind of used over time. This is only a section of it. If you were to see the full things, they would be much longer. Um, one of the more interesting things that is noticeable on this data um, is that up at the top for most of them, you'll see that it, it gets concentrated a lot darker, right? Um, and you'll see that there's this dark band and then everything else is kind of light towards the bottom. Um, the dark band is actually the YouTube comments um, and concentrated from the YouTube comments, which is kind of YouTube has this reputation of being just the lowest of the low in terms of internet comments. And it was really interesting to see that actually proven here um, from this very basic system that I was using to evaluate the language. Um, so these visualizations, you know, they were really long. And I was what surprised me initially when I started working on this project was just the amount of data that I was collecting. Um, it was just so much more than I had anticipated, which was really disheartening, but actually kind of gave a little bit of direction to the project as well. Um, I really wanted to do something wearable uh, for this project um, initially when I first started out, because I think that there is something really universal to the act of putting on clothes, no matter where we come from, no matter who we are, generally we wake up in the morning and we put on clothes every day. Um, and so I was kind of struggling a little bit with what this output would act, was actually going to be, but seeing how much data I was collecting and seeing how long the visualizations were gave me the idea to print out my visualizations as bolts of fabric. So that's exactly what I did. Um, I printed out my visualizations as bolts of fabric. You can see the gray fabric here and the green fabric are kind of rolled up so you can see. Um, and then I commissioned designers, fashion designers, from the groups that these words were attacking to take all of this fabric, all of it, as much of the bolt that they could possibly get, which is a lot. Um, I think for the LGBTQ garment, he ended up using about nine yards of fabric. And for the woman garment, she ended up using about eight and a half yards of garment. Or fabric, which if you're not familiar with making clothes, that's kind of enough of one fabric to cover the entirety of a seasonal collection. So it's a lot of fabric. And so they were using all of this fabric to kind of create these couture garments that were really costumey and really unwieldy and hard to wear. And that was the point because I wanted the weight of the costumes and the difficulty of the outfits to kind of mirror the oppression that this language had on these people in their day-to-day -day lives. Um, and so you can see in the center, these these are the resulting two garments. Uh, the LGBTQ garment, which is the pink one, is very costumey. It's something like a drag queen would wear, which was the intention of the designer. Um, the woman garment has kind of a high collar that obscures the face while revealing as much of the body as possible, pointing to the way that women have been sexualized and kind of only appreciated for their bodies um, over the course of history. Uh, and so they really, I think these designers really did a great job in kind of taking the idea of the project and using the clothes to communicate that. Um, 
The next major project that I did uh, was a project called Grills. Um, and so Grills was kind of an analysis of language used in hip hop lyrics. And Grills actually started life as a Python library that I wrote to cleanly and efficiently collect lyrical data from the website Rap Genius before they had an official application programming interface that made their data open and accessible to everybody to use in whatever projects that they wanted. Um, back when I wrote this library, they had no such thing. So I was kind of going in and scraping the raw HTML. And I put this together as a Python library and made it open source so other developers could kind of use it in their own projects if they wanted to. Um, after this library was written, um, I was interested in using it in a project, and it took me a little bit of time before I realized what exactly I wanted to do with it. Uh, but then one day, I was kind of browsing YouTube, and I came across the following video, which, if for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, it's uh, a clip from the video for the Notorious B.I.G.'s uh, uh, song, Juicy, which I'm going to play for a second. Genesis. When I was dead broke, man, I couldn't picture this. 50 inch screen, money green, leather sofa. Got two rides, a limousine with the chauffeur. Phone bill about two G's flat. No need to worry, my accountant handles that. And my whole crew is lounging. Celebrating every day, no more public housing. Thinking back on my one room shack. Now my mom pimps a act with mix on the back. And she loves to show me off, of course. Smiles every time my face is up in the sauce. We used to fuss when the landlord dissed us. No heat, wonder why Christmas missed us. Birthdays was the worst days. Now we sip champagne when we thirsty. Uh, damn right, I like the life I live. Cause I went from negative to positive, and it's all good. And if you don't know, now you know, you know. Okay, so. For those of you unfamiliar with the song, Juicy is kind of the, it was the first major hit that the Notorious B.I.G. had when he was emerging into the public consciousness as an artist, but it's also kind of become known as the quintessential rags to riches story in hip hop. He's kind of juxtaposing where he came from, which you had phrases like public housing, he referred to dealing drugs a lot, he refers to coming from extreme poverty and not knowing where his next meal was coming from, in contrast with the life that he lives now which is full of money and luxury and all of the things that he never thought he was going to be able to have back when he was living that very poor lifestyle. And so thinking about this, after I saw, after I came across this video again for the first time in a while, um, I started thinking about how this is a really dominant trope in hip hop, this kind of idea of wealth discrepancy and making a big deal of your wealth discrepancy. You're not really taken seriously in a lot of cases unless you came from the streets, unless you came up from a very specific type of upbringing and kind of have worked your way up and are now so rich that you can fling money around and buy jewelry and cars and basically not care about how much money you're spending. Um, and if you don't have that kind of trajectory, you're really not taken seriously. The artist Drake is a great example of this because when he first came out, he was already known as a star of a children's television show called Degrassi, The Next Generation. And so when he first started uh, his rap career, he really wasn't taken seriously because everybody assumed that he just came from this TV background and he had all this TV money and that he wasn't actually quote unquote real enough to be a rapper. Um, this is a theme that kind of makes his way, it, his, makes its way into his lyrics and he still is obsessed with this idea that he wasn't taken seriously at the outset of his career because he did not have that kind of path to get to where he was. Um, and so in thinking about this, um, I decided to do a project that addressed this, which ended up becoming Grills. So what I did uh, was I wrote a program that kind of looked through, I chose five hip hop songs to start out with for the first exhibition. And 
I loaded uh, the lyrical content into a program that I wrote. And again, the same kind of process that I used in Hate Couture. I did a lot of research because the interesting thing about hip hop is that there's a lot of slang involved, right? You can't just go through the dictionary and kind of look at definitions and kind of determine what means that you're really rich and what means that you're really poor. You kind of have to do a lot of manual research on this yourself, which is what I did. So I created these dictionaries of words that were associated with extreme poverty on one end and words that were associated with extreme wealth on the other. And then I ran this dictionary on the program, and if the program found a poverty word or phrase and a wealth word or phrase that were really immediately next to each other, it got a really high score. I think my rating was between zero and one, right? So the closer these words were together, the higher to one this score would get. The further and further apart they got, meaning that if you found a poverty word that was relatively far apart from a wealth word, that score would get lower. So the lower numbers means that, okay, yeah, they're next to each other, but they're a little bit more distant. These numbers were used to create landscapes for different songs. Um, and as you can see here, I took these landscapes, which started form as kind of two-dimensional line drawings, and kind of extruded them onto the front of a 3D model. Um, I used, uh, the, the process for this, I used one of those mouth guard dentures on my own teeth to kind of do the mold for it, and then did all of the, the 3D modeling based on those measurements. So these grills actually only fit me at this point, um, which I think is really funny because I've gotten a lot of questions about whether or not I can make them for other people. Um, but onto those measurements, I then extruded the front landscape, the idea being that if you are juxtaposing these two extremes really, really closely together a lot of the time, your grill would be so crazy that you wouldn't even be able to close your mouth while you're wearing it because it had that much jewelry on it, right? Um, so as you can see, the landscapes differ based on the song. So Juicy has a pretty even peak and valley system because he's constantly going back and forth between the two over the course of the song. Whereas songs, um, other songs, it, I apologize, it's black so you can't really see, uh, but songs like Hard Knock Life by Jay-Z, which is this one in the corner right here, um, there's only like a big peak in the middle and then a little bit at the end because really the whole song he's talking about his poor, his you know upbringing in poverty. Um, and he only mentions being rich a couple of times through the song. So as a result, you only get these limited peaks here where he kind of juxtaposes the two together. So after these were built onto the 3D models, I 3D printed them in polished gold steel. And I exhibited them in jewelry cases that kind of put them in these velvet pillows, um, in these kind of like glass display boxes. And the, the songs were running for each different display. So as you were looking at the grill and examining the landscape, you could actually listen to the song in question that was being played at the same time. Um, so the next thing I'm going to talk about is uh, a project that I did in 2014. Um, so this project was entitled Hands Up. And it kind of takes a departure from uh, what I've normally done, which is collect a lot of data uh, over a long period of time or from different sources and kind of analyze it. Um, but this project was uh, directly inspired uh, clearly by the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and specifically, um, I worked on this project with a frequent collaborator that I worked with a lot in grad school. Um, and the night that uh, the, uh, the grand jury refused to indict the police officer that killed Eric Garner, uh, we were we met up at, you know, we kind of encountered each other at a party and we were talking about what we felt like we could do because we were both going to the protests and we were both showing up, but we felt like we needed to be able to do more and to kind of use our abilities in order to say something about 
how we felt about this situation and about how we felt about this interaction, this really heated interaction between police and people of color. Um, and so the idea was to generate empathy for being in such a high intensity of encounter with the police or authority figures in power uh, for people who may never have really come across that situation before. Uh, because we felt that there was a large discrepancy between people who immediately understood what that feels like to be um, encountered in that kind of really crazy high stakes manner on a regular basis and people who just didn't have any conception of that kind of experience. So we built um, a giant LED wall that was flashing red and blue lights. The experience was meant to be um, encountered one at a time. So one at a time, people would go behind this black curtain. Um, they would be, once they got into the room, um, a sensor would, would see that they were there. And they would, uh, an audio track would start playing with sirens and an officer saying, this is the police, come out with your hands up. If you complied, when your hands reached a certain point above your head, the strobe lights would flash, a gunshot would sound, and everything would go quiet, and it would be left as a really chilling void. If you did not comply after about a minute of standing there and not knowing what to do, the same thing would happen. And so this was kind of, we wanted to make a point about what would you do if you were just encountered by all of this noise, all of this really high intensity lights, sounds, people telling you what to do, people telling you what you should or should not do, conflicted feelings about if you should obey, if you shouldn't obey, um, and kind of put people as best as we could. Obviously, we were never going to replicate being stopped by the police. We were never going to exactly replicate that entire situation but as close as we could with the materials that we had at hand, we kind of wanted to broaden people's perspectives and make people have some semblance of an understanding of what that might potentially feel like. Um, at the entrance, and the, or the entrance and the exit of the gallery, we also were displaying bystander videos of all of these encounters that had been released on YouTube and social media on a loop so that people would kind of know what they were getting into as they were coming into and going out of the exhibition. Um, and we got a lot of um, positive and negative press about this. One of the most notable things that happened was Pat Lynch, who is the head of the Policemen's Benevolent Association in New York City, um, re came out vocally against our project and really kind of insulted it. Um, and we, um, you know, got a, we got an article in the Daily News because of it, and we generated a lot of interest in controversy, which I think was the point, um, because we kind of wanted to just make people aware of the existence of our project and make people aware of the fact that this was something that needed to be spoken to on a larger level. The next project that I'm going to talk about um, is the project that I've actually devoted the bulk of my research to over the last couple of years. Um, I'm going to play a video. It's a little bit lengthy, but it gets you into the idea of what this project was about. This is a project called Hashtag Bellwether, which was surrounding the election of 2016 and which I've been working on since the summer of 2015. My whole life, I've really been interested in the way that our actions and the way that we behave kind of leave this trace in our social norms and vice versa, how our social norms kind of subconsciously influence our actions and the way that we behave around other people. And so lately with my work, I've been really interested in kind of taking big chunks and big swaths of this social media data and kind of analyzing the way that the language operates and seeing if the way that we use language on social media can tell us anything about the way that we kind of perceive other people or interact with other people or just generally behave in society on a larger scale. Ohio is what is known as a bellwether state, meaning that the results in Ohio um, can be used to kind of 
indicate the outcome of the presidential election. And so I wanted to do a project that kind of paid attention not necessarily to Ohio voters as this chunk that is to be won over, but as these individual voices who have very, very differing and diverse opinions about what these presidential candidates actually are and what they stand for. I wrote a computer program that used any of the candidates' names as search terms on Twitter, basically. And I just wrote the program so that anytime it hit one of a tweet with any of these candidates' names on it, it would collect it, save it to a text document on a server, and then kind of rerun the script um, you know, a few seconds later. I haven't been saying I've collected every single tweet. I've been saying I've collected every tweet that I possibly can. Um, which I think is a really important distinction to make. The way that this is organized is by frequency, right? And it's by individuals and populations all feeling the same way and agreeing on the same thing, so that kind of gets swayed in one direction or another. I've made a lot of my career in trying to give people voice in public places, in public spheres, and you sort of honored this, the voice of the people by, by turning it into uh, a, a, an artifact worthy of exhibit in a gallery like this. And that also changes everything. It turns political speech into art. These candidates have these messages that they're kind of using design and using this collateral in order to get their voters to kind of broadcast into a large area, right? What if instead of that super curated and highly vetted message, it instead is turned back on them and it reflects what voters are actually saying about them online? You just want to read everything. What are these, the, these ways that people are actually discussing the candidates, what are the feelings that people actually have, and to see them manifest as um, part of the design is so powerful. I mean, it really is very subversive, and it um, completely undermines the efforts of campaigns in a truly kind of delicious and small-d democratic way. This is the antidote for your media bubble, this exhibit, right? You want to know what the rest of the state thinks? Come and see this exhibit and you'll, you will be confronted with everything that people believe that is not what you believe, right? It's really actually hard in some ways to find your own sentiments here because everybody else's sentiment is also is magnified. At the end of the day, it does what, it, what has been a pretty consistent theme in my work, which is kind of taking this impenetrable wall of stuff and turning it into something that is legible and something that is easily understood. And most of the people that come in here spend a good deal of time with this exhibit and actually go through and read, like pay it and make sure that they read a lot of stuff on the wall, um, which is great. And I think that that says a lot to what the physicalization of all of this information has actually led to, which is people paying a little bit closer attention to it. I mean, if you're looking back, you know, if four, eight, 16, 40, whatever years from now, you're looking back to try and understand, wait, what was that that happened back in 2016? If you were to look through the sort of bastardized campaign signs and, and campaign collateral, it would give you a pretty good idea of what was going on in the country at that moment. And for um, a single snapshot body of work to do that and to capture like the essence of this like really strange campaign is a, is a pretty monumental work. Um, so that kind of gives you an overview of what the project was. 
which was an examination of Twitter data emanating from Ohio or discussing Ohio during the 2016 election season, presidential election season. Um, but I want to kind of take you back and kind of explain what led me to this point, because this has kind of sparked an interest not only in kind of this, these data trails and what we can learn about each other from them, but also social media as archive. And what does it mean if we look at it as archival material and primary sources that can be read down the line as we do television today or radio or even newspapers? Um, so the background of the project um, was that I was commissioned by Spaces, which is one of the oldest alternative arts organizations in the United States. It's based in Cleveland, Ohio, which I said earlier, that's where I'm from. So there was a lot of resonance to me in going back to Ohio and kind of analyzing the election from this viewpoint. Because growing up, and I'm sure that this is a phrase that a lot of you are also familiar with, um, as Ohio goes, so goes the nation, was something that I heard very frequently, especially once I was old enough to really understand politics and understand Ohio's pivotal role in the election. Um, Ohio is one of the most critical states in the presidential election process. It's been known as that increasingly in every presidential election over the last um, you know, several years. Um, no Republican has ever won the White House without it, and Democrats actually haven't won the White House without it either since 1960. Um, so this is largely due to its demographic makeup. As you can see on this map here, you have large concentrations of Democrat, uh, Democratic supporters and voters in the cities, but then here huge concentrations of Republican voters out in the more rural areas, right? It's a very, like, really interesting combination of types of voters and people who have different views and different opinions of what they want from their government. Um, and so as a result of this, um, a lot of campaign attention has been put towards Ohio, often at the expense of other states. So what you're looking at right now is two maps. Um, of uh, On the left, you'll see campaign visits represented by a waving hand. And on the right, you'll see uh, advertising money represented by dollar signs spent by both the Bush and the Kerry campaign in 2004. And you'll notice that on this graph, the the uh, icons over Ohio aren't even discernible anymore, right? Because such a high concentration of money and time was poured into Ohio to kind of get the voters to vote in one direction or the other. And you'll notice that states like Texas, states like New York, California, didn't even register on these maps radar because it was kind of assumed that they were going to go one way or the other. So they really just focused the effort on these particular swing states, Ohio being a huge crucial one that was going to turn the election for whichever candidate Bush ended up winning that year, and of course he won it with the assistance of Ohio. So all of this has kind of generated this idea of the mythical Ohio voter, right? Who is this Ohio voter that is being won over? And so as a result, a lot of the strategy that surrounds these political campaigns is to kind of carpet bomb voters with all of these messages, regardless of like who, what demographics they are, regardless of who you're calling. I remember, you know, um, I think it was either 2008 or 2012, my parents started screening calls when I called home to Ohio. They still live there which they'd never really done before. And I learned later that it was because they were getting so many robocalls from both the Romney and the Obama campaigns that they just wanted to wait and hear that it was an actual person on the other end before they picked up the phone. Um, and nine times out of 10, they weren't picking up the phone because it was a campaign phone call. Um, so this is kind of anecdotally representative of what happens just generally with Ohio and with these campaigns is that 
they don't really consider the Ohio voter as an individual, right? As somebody who has very specific thoughts and ideas, it's just part of a huge demographic that needs to be won over. And they need to get over 50% or over a quorum, right? And then they win the election, right? Um, so a lot of emphasis is placed on polls. Uh, this is a screenshot of 538 taken, um, I think, the summer right after the Democratic National Convention. Um, they do a poll of polls where they aggregate all of the pollsters and kind of determine who has a better chance of winning the presidency. Um, so polls have traditionally been the way that people gauge who is going to win, what candidates are getting approval, what candidates are getting disapproval. But then in 2016, you had stories like this, why the polls missed Bernie Sanders' Michigan upset, right? And this has a lot to do with the polling system in the US, um, which you know, kind of has been at a stasis since the early 1900s and has kind of been working in a very similar way um, to, the, you know, to the way that polls were kind of operating back in the day, close to 100 years ago. There hasn't really been a whole lot that's changed about them. Generally, the discrepancies in the polls and the reason that there's been such this outcry about them getting not accurate is two reasons. Firstly, people aren't picking up the phone. Um, so this has a lot to do, there's a lot of reasons why people aren't picking up the phone. There's general trust of distrust of pollsters. People don't want to answer questions. They don't want to get involved politically. But then you also have the idea that it is much cheaper to poll using an auto dialer on a landline than it is to manually dial cell phones. In 1991, it became illegal to actually auto dial to cell phones. And so as a result, um, you know, people uh, pollsters tend to generally use landlines because it's much more cost-effective for them to do so. The problem is, is that the landline is quickly becoming obsolete, right? And there are certain demographics, um, specifically the youth vote, but also other demographics who might just be using a cell phone or a smartphone as their primary form of communication who don't have access to it and will never be contacted by a pollster because they don't have a landline and they don't have access to it. Um, the second is that when, uh, when they do pick up, when people do pick up, they aren't given a lot of options as far as how to feel, right? Um, the questions are extremely curated. You have, it's usually multiple choice. You're not given room to really freely express your opinion. You're not given room to kind of waver or express doubt or combine answers. Um, and there's no real room for nuance or legitimate personal opinion in these polls. And so as a result, mainly because of the first issue, because people just aren't picking up the phone, the sample sizes get really, really small, right? The number of people that are actually be able to be contacted for these polls gets really small. And so pollsters have to use a technique uh, called, or an idea called non-response bias in order to kind of weight the polls so that people who are from the demographic who don't really respond can actually kind of be counted in the polls, all right? This probabilistic weighting, kind of assuming that you got enough responses from this community, extrapolating from the responses that you were able to get and kind of weighting things accordingly, this kind of leads to inaccuracy because you weren't actually able to sample these people. You don't know how they feel. And so you kind of get an estimation of what could potentially happen with this poll that is kind of further and further apart from the real thing, the, the smaller and smaller sample size that you actually have. Um, so with all of this, um, particularly in, in 2012 and 2016, there's been a lot of talk because social media serves as this really indelible archive of campaigns and of kind of this, um, not of campaigns, of individual voices, um, 
there's been talk of using social media to either supplement or augment the polls, right? And so you have projects like these two, the Twitter Political Index, which was from 2012, and the AP's Election Buzz, where they partnered with Google and with the Associated Press. Um, so this is kind of trying to do the same things as these polls. As you can see, the Twitter Political Index is kind of comparing approval and disapproval rating based on Twitter content with Gallup, um, and the Google Political Index is tracking uh, Google searches and mentions on Twitter, right? But this is still not quite right because this data, these millions of individual voices that are kind of being collected from these social media sources and from these Google searches are kind of being squeezed into this format that they kind of really don't belong into, right? Um, it contains some of the flaws of traditional polling. A lot of social media analyses are done at very highly specific moments of the campaign. Quantifying things in general kind of leaves no room for any kind of nuance or context or anything like that. Somebody talking in one way about Trump's Muslim ban versus another way, that search result would still come up for Muslim ban, right? But the context in which these people are talking about this are very, very different. So these really don't give you room to examine that. Right? It's not really looking at the, the content that is posted at social media. Um, in the case of the AP's election buzz, it's really just looking at volume and frequency, which is great, and that's really useful information to have, but it doesn't really tell us the whole story. Um, and as far as the political index from Twitter from 2012, it's still doing the same thing that polls do, which is categorizing people's opinion into a very broad approval versus disapproval. There is no room for emotions like fear or joy or anguish or disgust or anything like that. It's just one way or the other, and there's really no room for anything in between. So the question that I've had is, what about these individual voices? How can we do something to kind of get these people to be heard, right? And to, they, these voices are kind of being lost in the polling machine and lost in the social media analysis. How can we get these voices heard? Um, and so I started running a script. The first day that I ran it was the day of the first Republican presidential debate during the primary. And I stopped my server the day that Bernie Sanders endorsed Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination. So I got pretty much the entire primary cycle, um, starting from when it really mattered, when P the, the kind of field of candidates was kind of down to who would actually be campaigning from August until July. Um, the number of Ohio-centric tweets I ended up with was close to 15 million which is a huge sample size, and it's a lot. It's a lot of data to kind of work through. And so what I did was I wrote a script that kind of looked for specific grammatical structures and looked for phrases. So I would search for things like candidate's name plus is plus an adjective, or candidate's name plus is a plus a noun, or candidate's name plus should plus a verb, and so on and so forth. I had about 20 of these searches that I was running. Um, and so my script, every time it came across these phrases that were being used over and over again, it basically tallied up the frequency and sorted these phrases from the ones that were used most often to the ones that were used least often. So you can see kind of an example here. This is kind of some of the results that I got for Ted Cruz, kind of on the lower end of the spectrum. So you can see Cruz's The Establishment got 44 mentions in March, all the way down to um, Cruz is doing pretty well tonight in suburban counties, which got 23, right? Um, so from those frequencies, um, 
I came up with the idea of kind of hacking the candidates' campaign merchandise. So I did a lot of research into color, typography, fonts, kind of the things that they were using to get their message across because campaign merchandise is very heavily vetted, very heavily curated. It's kind of gone through a lot of approvals to get a very specific message out that a candidate wants broadcast out to a broader scale. Um, and then I hacked that merchandise to instead reflect what was being said about these candidates on social media. This was displayed in a chronology on the walls of the gallery. So you can see this started out in uh, August through December of 2015, went through January, February, and kind of in a monthly manner um, throughout the, the rest of the season. And there was a hierarchy of merchandise that that I got. So the lowest merchandise that you could potentially get was a campaign button, meaning 10 or above. If your tweet got 10 or above, or if a phrase got 10 or above mentions, I made a campaign button for it. The next tier was, ooh, sorry. The next tier was uh, the bumper sticker. So next to that, if it got between 10 and I think 50 mentions, or 150 mentions, it got a bumper sticker. The next tier up was the rally sign, then lawn signs, then t-shirts, and then if a tweet got broadcast to an unprecedented level, meaning that it got over, I think the number was like 1,500 or 2,000 tweets uh, or mentions in the course of a single month, I would make a proof of a quote unquote specialty item that I would construct um, for anybody who was interested in purchasing it uh, with that phrase written on a piece of merchandise that was kind of really closely associated with the campaign in question, uh, the Trump Make America Great Again hat. Here it says Trump is eating a taco salad on top of a bikini clad photo of his ex-wife, referring to, of course, to his Cinco de Mayo Twitter post um, that kind of got a lot of attention in the month of May. Um, and so, as mentioned in the video, this kind of illustrated um, the diversity of opinions in Ohio. It started out kind of like an evaluation of polling and whether or not social media could like be used as something to augment polling. Um, but it ended up being a tribute to just the diversity of political opinions in Ohio and kind of a real life examination of social media. You walk into this gallery, it's gonna take you a really long time to find something that you would actually find in your own feed. And you're surrounded by this avalanche of disparate and opposing viewpoints um, that kind of are, you know, don't really um, have anything to do with what you're thinking and what you're feeling, but are there. And you're forced to look at them in a real world, three-dimensional context instead of just avoiding them on your social media feed. Um, so the last two projects I'm gonna talk about really quickly are projects that I'm kind of working on right now. Um, as mentioned in the introduction, I'm part of a, an artist collective called Flux Factory. Um, and in November of 2015, for our artist in residence show, I created this work, which is basically a composite image of everybody's portrait who has ever been a resident at Flux Factory, who has ever participated in the residency program. This was created by going through everybody's portraits and collecting the most common red, green, and blue values which were then assigned to each pixel and kind of created this composite image of everybody's portrait based on what colors were appearing most frequently. Um, so in tandem with working on hashtag bellwether, um, I started looking kind of at all of these people who were running for the presidency. And it looks pretty homogenous, right? There are a few outliers, people like Ben Carson or Hillary Clinton or Bobby Jindal uh, or Jill Stein, right? But the majority of them are white and male. And so I was wondering what the composite for people who aspire to the presidency in this day and age would look like. And here is the result. 
Um, as you can see, there's a lot of noise in here, a lot of really bright reds and greens and blues, but what you'll notice is that there is a white man, albeit with no discernible features, but a white man in a suit at the center of this photograph. And so this kind of piqued my interest, and I started running my program on um, people who ran for office in various years. Um, so from left to right, top to bottom, you have 1800, 1860, 1912, 1932, and then on the bottom it's 1960, 1980, 2000, and 2008 is the last one. Um, and so this kind of became an ongoing project for me. This is actually going to be shown in a show in Johnson City, Tennessee um, in the next week. Um, a series of these that I did not only for presidential candidates, but also congressional sessions too. So you've got the first Congress, the 16th, which is when the Missouri Compromise was passed, the 75th, which was when the Second New Deal was passed, the 88th, which was the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the 99th, which is the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, and the 115th Congress, which is the current Congress in session right now. Um, and so it became interesting to me to kind of track not only the diversity or lack thereof of people who theoretically represent us in the government, right, and what that looks like, but also the ways in which the technology used to create these portraits have kind of shifted and changed over time. Um, and the last project that I'm going to talk about um, deals directly with Donald Trump uh, and his Twitter account. Um, I'm sure you are all familiar with uh, kind of the noise and the media coverage that has surrounded Trump ever since he began running for office in 2015. Um, he tweets, and he tweets directly and kind of off the top of his head. He doesn't go through this insane vetting, and he doesn't go through this huge process that most other politicians do with social media. The other thing is that he generally tends to tweet really extreme and outlandish things that often kind of undercut what we know as the foundation of American government. He's advocated getting rid of things. He's advocated openly contradicting certain laws or constitutional amendments. And so I wanted to see just how prevalent that was. So I've actually been collecting. I got his entire Twitter archive with the scraper uh, the day that he won the election. And I've actually been collecting all of his tweets consistently um, since then, every day. Um, and so I have a whole archive of them just sitting on my computer. And what I do with these tweets is I've been kind of taking the foundational documents of American society and marking them up based on what he is saying, not only in Twitter, but also the executive orders that he's signing, the press conferences and news conferences that he's having, anything that's coming out of his administration, um, and any interviews that he has with the press, and just generally anything that he has written or spoken, his own archive. And wherever he directly amends or contradicts something that I find in these documents, I kind of mark it up and put an editor's note on there. The first series I did, obviously this one was the First Amendment um, that I kind of marked, have marked up a little bit and put the editor's notes. Um, I showed a series of these. It's a 10-page document with all 27 constitutional amendments at a gallery in Philadelphia called Little Berlin over the summer. Um, and I formatted it to look like an ex a presidential executive order uh, because he's been using these to kind of pass a lot of more the more controversial aspects of his administration and kind of the things that he wants to do without necessarily going through Congress and dealing with act the actual legislative process of getting these things legitimately passed as laws. Um, so he's just been signing executive orders and kind of using that workaround uh, to kind of pass all of these really um, 
controversial and sometimes inflammatory things like the Muslim ban um, or you know, no transgender troops and that kind of thing. Um, and so you can see that these documents have kind of been marked up. You'll see the notes, it's the amendment, and then all of the things that he has said, not all of them because sometimes there's far more than I can effectively put into a single 10-page document. But the most important ones that I found kind of as an addendum and using as uh, the reason and the research as to why he would potentially be using an executive order to kind of change these legal underpinnings of our society and our government. Um, so this is what I'm working on now. Uh, more, I'm going to be going forward and doing this for the full Constitution as well as the Declaration of Independence, um, landmark congressional uh, legislation, and Supreme Court decisions. And the idea is to kind of make a really big legal book that's edited by Donald J. Trump um, kind of as a record of what he said um, and kind of all of the things that he's tried to do to the government since, uh, since being inaugurated as president. Um, that is kind of an encapsulation of my work. Um, thank you very much for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, and, you know, it's been great speaking to you guys. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>